100.7 FM WHIN 1010 AM presents Sumner County Spotlight, a weekly public affairs program each Sunday at 10 AM. Sumner County Spotlight, exclusively by FNM Bank. 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville. FNM Bank offers personal banking, business banking, and mortgage loans too. Right here in Hendersonville, FNM Bank is one of the top independent banks in Tennessee. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. MMLS number 518158. Here's your host for Sumner County Spotlights, Tony Richards. Well, good morning. This is Jeff Shannon in for Tony Richards, and welcome to Sumner County Spotlight, airing each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. right here at WHIN. Of course, it's brought to you by our good friends over at FNM Bank at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard and online at myfnmbank.com. We are honored this morning to have us with us Sumner County Chancery Court Judge Lewis Oliver, and welcome to the program, sir. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. All right, well, let's start off, um, you know, just tell us a little bit about yourself. And uh, and I know that there's a question in here that you've been asked a million times. What is a Chancery Court judge? So the floor is yours, sir. Well, thank you for that question. Like I say, I've only had it about 500 times. <laughs> the, uh, <clears throat> in, uh, in Tennessee, there are three levels of court uh, that affect the individuals. In other words, there are actually five levels in court. But uh, in Sumner County, for example, there are three levels. Uh, if you get a traffic ticket uh, or if you violate the zoning code in, in your town, be it Hendersonville or Gallatin or wherever, <clears throat> you very likely will go into city court. And each of our city courts uh, in Sumner County have a judge. Connie Kittrell is the judge in Gallatin. Curtis Lincoln's the judge in Hendersonville. The other towns also have city judges. And uh, they would, in turn, uh, dispense justice based upon the alleged violation. Uh, if, in fact, <clears throat> it is a violation of state law, you may very well be arrested, or you may be cited, or you may be uh, brought into General Sessions Court. Uh, General Sessions Court is, in essence, the county court. Uh, Sumner County has three General Sessions judges. Uh, judge uh, Hunter, Judge Carter, and Judge Howard. Judge Howard is also the juvenile judge. Uh, those courts handle your misdemeanor uh, violations, uh, violations of uh, state law, typically, uh, DUIs, uh, violations of other uh, laws re related to violation of the criminal code. General Sessions Court also has civil jurisdiction, and I mention that because I am a civil judge, but civil jurisdiction up to $25,000. So if you have a lawsuit, you want to sue your neighbor, you want to sue someone who has uh, infringed upon your rights in some way, uh, then, then you can bring a lawsuit against them in General Sessions Court, uh, in many cases without an attorney, uh, by filling out what's called a civil warrant. And the judge uh, in that court, typically Judge Hunter or Judge Carter, uh, will hear your case and without a jury uh, will render a decision uh, in your civil case or certainly in your criminal case. Now, we also have in Sumner County, and I'll, I'll show the distinction on this, uh, Sumner County actually is a single county judicial district. 
Tennessee has 33 judicial districts. In, in many cases, these judicial districts are made up of multiple counties. Uh, for example, a, one of the judicial districts in West Tennessee, uh, which, which they are sparsely populated counties, goes all the way from the Kentucky state line to the Alabama state line in a district which has six counties in it. And the judge in that district or the judges travel around to the various counties uh, and dispense justice. We're lucky in Sumner County that we have a single county judicial district, and the judicial district is District 18. And in Judicial District 18, uh, we, have both, we have a chancery court, we have a circuit court, and we have a criminal court. By comparison, when you go over to Wilson County, they have four counties uh, and the same number of judges. When you go over to Robertson County, Robertson County and Montgomery County are Judicial District 19, and in that case, they have six judges but only two counties. So there's a great disparity in, in the number of counties and the number of judges in each district, but there are 33 of these districts throughout Tennessee. For example, Nashville is the 20th judicial district, and I think they have like 16 judges. And so your state courts, and we're considered state court, uh, in Sumner County is the 18th judicial district, as I said, and it has a chancery court, and my official title is chancellor. Uh, I go by Chancery Court Judge because I hear probate cases as well. A lot of people don't know what a chancellor is. They think, well, am I over the college or am I over some other entity? And so I choose, in many cases, to identify myself as a Chancery Court Judge because people certainly know who the judge is. In addition to my role, you have the circuit judge, which is Joe Thompson. And Judge Thompson hears the cases at law, and then we have Judge D. Gay, and Judge Gay primarily hears uh, the criminal cases. Uh, people are familiar uh, more so with Judge Gay, I think, than they would be with Judge Thompson or me. Now, you said, what is Chancery Court? Well, Chancery Court is actually a throwback to the old judicial system as it was originally established in England. It was uh, brought over to the United States as the United States developed. States were chartered within the United States. North Carolina had chancellors or has chancellors. Chancellors are a court of equity. Chancery court is a court of equity. Court of equity means you you do what should be done. Court of law, you're required to follow strictly the law. But in this case, uh, I have theoretically some greater latitude as a court of equity in making decisions. Now, I have to follow the law, certainly, but there are times when uh, cases may be presented to the court that may give me a little more latitude in, in making a decision for what's right. Now, what does chancellor mean? Well, in, in context of the old courts and the courts that came from England, it would be defined as the conscience of the king. Well, used to over in England and uh, in some of the European countries, the kings made all the decisions. If you had a dispute, you took it to the king. Well, the king obviously doesn't have the time to deal with all of the various issues that may come up within their kingdom. And so they select and appoint chancellors. And the, and the chancellors then would be the conscience of the king, would be the, would be the person making the decision uh, in, in that kingdom on behalf of the king. And that has sort of transposed itself 
ultimately into the United States and more so into the southern parts of the United States. And this is part of the old world court system to have a chancellor. Many states have gotten away from it and have gone to a system similar to the federal system where each of the courts are, are of the same type and uh, is is more streamlined, but it but Tennessee constitutionally has not made a change in the uh, judicial system since the charter to any extent since the charter of the state of Tennessee was developed or constitution was developed. Now Judge Thompson is a court of law, and in a court of law, he, he follows more likely the law as set out in the Tennessee Code. Now, from my role as chancellor. I hear all of the probate cases that arise here in Sumner County, and typically there will be seven or 800 a year, which would be the probate of wills, the settlement of estates, the appointment of conservators, the appointments of guardians, uh, things of that nature, dealing with both disabled people as well as certainly deceased persons' estates. I will also deal with approximately 50, 40 to 50 percent of the divorces. Also, I will hear contract disputes. I will hear land disputes, property line disputes, things of that nature. Now, in the court of law, Judge Thompson hears cases of unliquidated damages. The comparison is a contract, uh, you will have within the contract typically what the result will be from the litigation. If somebody borrows $100,000 from you, they owe you $100,000 back. You can look at that contract and you can tell how much is owed. On the other hand, the circuit court will hear cases involving unliquidated damages, automobile accidents. Somebody has an automobile accident and says, well, I broke my leg, uh, I'm entitled to be compensated. Well, there is no number that is established for what your broken leg is worth. It's what the jury decides. And so typically the court of the circuit court will have more jury cases than the chancery court will have, even though from time to time we also have jury cases. And those unliquidated damages then are determined by the jury or by the court. And certainly Judge Gay then would hear all of the criminal cases. Now from time to time we will cross over I will hear criminal cases for Judge Gay. Judge Gay will hear a probate case for me. Judge Thompson may hear a case that I would normally hear if we have a conflict, if one of the judges has a conflict. I would say a couple of other things about that. It was a short question but a long answer. You have two other levels of court, and that is the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court. Any decision that's made in a court of record, and that it would be the three courts that I've just talked about, Chancery, Circuit, and Criminal, can be appealed to the Tennessee Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals then would hear the issue, would not retry the case, but decide whether or not the result was appropriate based upon the evidence presented. So from time to time, when I hear a case, it's appealed by the attorneys and by the litigants into the Court of Appeals. Sometimes the Court of Appeals agrees with me. Sometimes they don't, uh, but that's the process. And then ultimately, the Tennessee Supreme Court may hear the case. Typically, they hear a case based upon changing the case law in Tennessee. If the law has been black and they want to change it to be blue, uh, then that is when the Tennessee Supreme Court gets involved. So that's a little breakdown of, of what I do and how the system is set up. That, that's awesome. Judge, what, what do you find uh, you've, your favorite kind of case? Do you have like guardianships or probate? Do you find you, you kind of lean towards one or the other? 
typically I have more enjoyment to the extent that you can say enjoyment out of dealing with the probate cases. They are in many times easier with a set of facts. In other words, somebody makes a will. If the will is properly executed, and that's the first thing we look for, then that will is admitted to probate. And then that will will designate who receives the estate of the decedent. Now, a lot of it is cut and dry. It is a process we go through, but a lot of it's uh, simple. Now, I tried some cases on, on Tuesday regarding probate. For example, a family with eight children, these are adult children, their father dies. He died over a year ago. He was in his 80s when he died. Nothing had occurred regarding the estate. The oldest son comes in to probate the estate. Well, lo and behold, once that information gets out, here comes the 80-year-old man's girlfriend in with a will made five years ago that left everything to her. Well, don't think that doesn't stir everything up. Uh, but it's an interesting set of facts, and it's interesting to deal with that. Now, the the most jo- enjoyable proceeding that we deal with, that I deal with, and both Judge Thompson and I have the opportunity to do this, and that is to perform adoptions. And I will do adoptions once the COVID-19 era is passed and, and we're back to normalcy as it relates to the court operation, we will have people come in and maybe bring 25 to 40 people with them. It's almost like the birth of a child. And the family will come in, they'll bring balloons, they'll bring the preacher, they'll bring the aunts and uncles, and everybody's clapping, and it's a very happy time. Well, you know, it's uh, for the most uh, part. Yeah, well, and, and, and I, uh, I have some history with uh, in regards to that, but we adopted three children ourselves, and it, it is a very enjoyable experience. And I know that from your standpoint, it's it also has to be happy because you're you know have for forever families being formed right there in front of you, and uh, it, it's just a, a great cause. Judge, right now we're going to go into our first break. Right now, we're talking with Sumner County Chancery Court Judge Lewis Oliver. We'll return to Sumner County Spotlight in just a moment, so stay with us. FNM Bank presents Sumner County Spotlights. Since 1906, FNM Bank has been serving Middle Tennessee with first-class products and services. Visit them today at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville or myfmbank.com. And we're back with Sumner County Spotlight. This is Jeff Shannon filling in for Tony Richards this week. Uh, we're going to continue talking with our guest, Sumner County Chancery Court Judge Lewis Oliver. Uh, Judge, thank you so much for being here. And let's find a little bit about yourself and your history here in Sumner County. I'm one of the few uh, natives of Hendersonville that exists around Sumner County now. Uh, Hendersonville, back when I was a kid, some of my early memories, uh, Hendersonville had, uh, I think, uh, in 1950, maybe a population for the entire area, including north of Long Hollow Pike, of about 800 people. And I can remember going to public events where the whole town would show up, almost like Mayberry or something of that nature. And the town would uh, would come out for various uh, various public events. I can remember the Civic Club was the first civic organization in Hendersonville. It was formed by a lot of the men who had just returned from World War II, and they looked at the town and came up with trying to come up with some solutions for the needs the town had. Uh, they came up with the town's first water system. They came up with the town's first fire department, which, by the way, was an old Army 
fire engine that uh, was kept in the back of a service station, and if there was a fire in Hendersonville, the man named Henry Newman, who ran the service station, would get in the fire engine and drive it to the fire, and and the neighbors and, and volunteer firemen would all show up to fight the fire. So that was the extent of Hendersonville's fire department back in the early 1950s. But the Civic Club also had a field day where the whole town would come out and Anybody that bought a new car that year got to drive their new car around the football field to show everybody their new car. And so things have changed a lot Mm -hmm. in Hendersonville since then. Now, I graduated from Hendersonville High School in 1966, grew up in a family of myself and brother and sister and mother and father uh, living on Shibble Drive. And Shivel Drive is in the old part of town. That's the house I was brought home to when I got out of the hospital after being born. My daughter and her husband and her children live in that house now. And so it it makes me proud that they're able to live in the same place that I grew up in. My father was postmaster in Hendersonville for 33 years, from 1956 to 1982. And he helped get Hendersonville organized as a city. But because he was a federal employee, he couldn't run for election. He talked my grandfather into running, uh, Lewis Oliver Sr., who lived next door. And my grandfather was a carpenter. He didn't want any part of politics, but nevertheless, they prevailed upon him to do it. Now, the reason they did it that way is because the way Hendersonville was organized, a small area within the, within the old part of Hendersonville was incorporated. The law in Tennessee then would allow that incorporated city to annex other properties without a referendum. So in Hendersonville, the original city of Hendersonville was formed with a little over 400 people there in the old part of town, which is... Uh, uh, Powell Drive, Shivel Drive, Stadium Drive. Then once that town was formed, uh, overnight, one night, it annexed 17,000 people. So there was quite a controversy associated back in the late 60s uh, with the development of Hendersonville. Uh, my grandfather, as I indicated, ran for office, and my grandfather got the most votes in the first city election. And they turned to him and said, well, Mr. Oliver, you got the most votes. There were two others. And he said, look, he says, I'm a carpenter. I'm not a politician. I'm not going to be the mayor. So then they turned to the man that got the second most votes, who was a man named Ed Sisko. And Mr. Sisko said, look, I'm, a, I'm an electrician. Uh, I'm not a politician. I'm not going to be the mayor. Well, the only one left was a man named Dink Newman. And Dink Newman was also one of the organizers of the town. And they said, Dink, do you want to be mayor? And Dink says, yes, I'll be mayor. And Dink then became the first mayor of Hendersonville. Now, the coincidence about that is he was also the first graduate of Hendersonville High School. He uh, was older than the other children going to the high school. He was almost 20 years old when World War II broke out. And he was so old, he was the assistant football coach in addition to being one of the students. And they were preparing to draft Dink out of high school into the Army and the principal says, look, says, you're almost through with the school year. You're going to serve our country. I'm going to go ahead and give you your diploma. And they gave him his diploma, and he became the first graduate of Hendersonville High School. And so uh, that's a noteworthy situation of being not only the first mayor, but also 
<laughs> the first graduate of Hendersonville High School. But talking about myself, I graduated from MTSU. Uh, I went to the National School of Law. I grew up in a in a good town at a good time. Uh, have a lot of friends that, that I uh, still have breakfast with once a month uh, that graduated over 50 years ago uh, with me from high school. Uh, after I completed college, I became the city recorder in Hendersonville after some time. And, and in 1973, I was appointed as Hendersonville's second city manager. City manager was under the city commission manager form of government. It's a different form of government than what's there now. Now it's mayor alderman. It's considered a weak mayor alderman form of government that's in Hendersonville now. In the 1970s up to the mid-1980s, it was the city commission manager form of government in which you had five commissioners elected at large and you have... Uh, a city manager that, in essence, runs the city. The commissioners then elect their own mayor. So one of the five commissioners in that situation always was selected as mayor. A vice mayor was selected. And then, in this case, I served or others served as city manager, which was the administrative head of the city government. Uh, I served in that position until 1982. I was involved in virtually every aspect of the development of Hendersonville. The Drake's Creek Park, in which all the ball fields are located, uh, was a project that I played a significant role in. And when I say that, it's not my project. It was the town's project. It was a lot of people that involved themselves in a lot of things that went on in Hendersonville then. But in the, in the unique position I was in, uh, I was able to play a significant role in a lot of the development. Drake Street Park was built on the Corps of Engineer property, and the city didn't have to buy the property. The city got grants for the construction of most of those ball fields, and it became an overnight success. Uh, it surprised me, as city manager, how much interest there was in establishing a lot of organized sports in the Hendersonville area. I mean, it has blossomed. It's unbelievable to me compared to what was there when I was a child. As city manager and with the city commission uh, support, we paved every road in Hendersonville. Most of the streets in Hendersonville uh, were what's called shot and chip, full of potholes. Something had to be done. We borrowed the money. And we paved every road in town. And people were ecstatic over that. It was, again, unbelievable. The, uh, the hospital. Hendersonville did not have adequate medical care. Charles Kimbrough, who was the mayor at the time, and myself, interviewed HCA, interviewed hospital affiliates, interviewed General Care Corporation and selected hospital affiliates to build a hospital. But you can't go out and just build a hospital when you want to. And we had to organize an effort to get that hospital approved. I have never seen uh, such support before then or after then for a project in town. And so HCA ultimately wound up owning hospital affiliates, but the Hendersonville Medical Center was a project that we began in the early 1970s to bring in medical care into the community, and that was very successful. So, Josh, a uh, question for you. How do you Certainly. feel about the city manager form of government versus the city administrator kind of position that they're going to be adopting now? Uh, what's your feeling as regard to that? Well, the, the city manager form of government was voted out in 1986. 
there was a lot of misinformation put out about the uh, Mayor Alderman Charter. People said, we want to be able to elect the person that runs the city, being the mayor. We want to be able to elect our mayor, not have one of the commissioners, not have the commissioners elect them. And so uh, in 1986, the vote was to go to the Mayor Alderman Charter. And we had then a succession of mayors, both in two-year terms and four-year terms. Now it's a four-year term who have basically been the chief executive officer of the city. Jamie Clare is the mayor now. Scott Foster was the mayor before. What they failed to realize, some of them have failed to realize, is this still called the weak mayor form of government. The mayor has no other greater power under the charter than what the aldermen give him. Now, what I think is most effective and in balance with this is that the mayor will continue to be elected. The mayor will still continue to be the chief executive officer of the city, but the mayor is empowered to bring in a professional to hire a city administrator that reports to the mayor and that performs duties uh, management duties under the direction of the mayor. A professional can deal with the day-to-day -day operation, but not have the, in this case, seven of the commissioners out here trying to tell the city administrator what to do to the, to the detriment of the mayor and to the detriment of the people who elected the mayor. The mayor is the only citywide office that people can vote for. And I think the mayor needs to certainly carry the greater amount of authority in operating the city, and I think that's what the people voted on in 1986, when that charter was taken away, uh, the city commission manager charter was taken away and the mayor alderman charter adopted. Now, one of the fallacies of all of this, and I saw an article in the, one of the papers the other day talking about the representative form of government we have now. Well, right now, there are 13 people on the council, uh, on the board of aldermen. There's the mayor, two aldermen from each of six districts. When, when we had the city manager commission form of government, you voted for every commissioner. I had a vote for every elected official. Right now, I, I only vote for two of the aldermen and the mayor. Well, two of the aldermen and the mayor can go down to defeat in any vote. The board of mayor and aldermen can come in and zone the property next door to me, and my alderman votes against it, my two aldermen vote against it, and the mayor votes against it, and it still gets rezoned. I've got no say whatsoever in what they do. Under the former uh, form of government, all of those commissioners had to answer to me at the polls. So do we have a more representative form of government? Certainly not. The most representative form of government is when I have the right to vote for those who affect my destiny. And right now, we don't have that. But nevertheless, I think that the city administrator is probably a good idea. But I think the city administrator should, should report to the mayor, who's elected by the people at large, and uh, the mayor remains the person ultimately responsible and in the position of authority to make those decisions. Well, you know, I think this is a, a, a big hot topic right now, and I think you know we're, we're not going to hear the end of it. And there's going to be some changes and some growing pains, I'm sure, once this uh, uh, they they find the right person for that position. So, I know right now Dave Lamarve has been extended on his contract, so he's he's going to be in there for a little bit longer. And uh, you know, he's doing a great job. I think uh, Dave has always done a great job for the city, and uh, he's one of those guys that you can always count on. That's for sure. So, well, let me comment about that. Yeah. I hired. Dave Lamarb to work for the city of Hendersonville when I was city manager. And he was hired uh, in the parks department. He was not the director at the time. He was, 
I think maybe the assistant director. There had been two other directors hired for the Parks Department after Dave came there. But ultimately, uh, he worked his way up to be director. He's been there. He's been loyal. He's knowledgeable, been involved in the community, he and his wife. And certainly he has done, in my opinion, an excellent job. He and Jamie Clary, the mayor, I think need to continue to try to work together. There have been some rough spots on it. Uh, I don't blame that on Dave necessarily. I don't blame it on Jamie necessarily. I think it's both of them. Both of them put in a position they didn't want to be in. But I think Dave Lamar has been a good solution, temporary solution, to the situation that that the community's been facing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think they've moved a little fast. Uh, in trying to place somebody in that position. I think they could have waited and not gone forward. I think there was the urgencies because they wanted to try to get it done before some of them got voted out of office, probably what I think. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's definitely a hot topic here in Hendersonville for sure. But listen, we're going to take a, another break right now. We're talking to Summer County Chancery Court Judge uh, Lewis Oliver. We appreciate him. We're going to return to Summer County Spotlight uh, sponsored by F&M Bank, 221 Indian Lake Boulevard here in Hendersonville and at myfnmbank.com. We'll be right back after these words. FNM Bank presents Sumner County Spotlights. Since 1906, FNM Bank has been serving Middle Tennessee with first-class products and services. Visit them today at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville or myfmbank.com. And we're back with Sumner County Spotlight right here with Jeff Shannon and for Tony Richards uh, this week. We're going to continue talking with our guest, Sumner County Chance Court Judge Lewis Oliver. And, and Judge, you know, we've got quite a bit of history here. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, after I left my job as city manager, I was a practicing attorney and began a law practice in Hendersonville in 1982. Practiced for some 32 years serving the citizens of Hendersonville. And when I say serving the citizens of Hendersonville, a lot of people look at lawyers and say, well, lawyers are just out to get your money. But I'll tell you what, lawyers are people who help people solve their problem. People, uh, no one came to me as an attorney in those 32 years that didn't have a problem, that didn't want to try to help get, uh, get it solved. And so I considered my service for that 32-year period uh, as serving the citizens of Hendersonville. And it also certainly enlightened me to be a small businessman. But one of the things that uh, that we did during that 32 years is that Jim Fuquay, who was the former city attorney for Hendersonville and former mayor of Hendersonville later, and I became partners and purchased uh, Hazel Path Mansion, which is one of the most historical monuments, one of the most historic places in Sumner County. It was built by General Daniel Smith, who was a general in the Civil War, but most uh, most notably served the uh, the Union cause during the Civil War. The Union Army immediately after the Civil War began came and took a portion of Sumner County, including the portion where Hazel Path is located. It was a huge farm of over a thousand acres, and uh, it was a working farm. And the Union Army. Uh, was smart enough to realize, the generals were smart enough to realize that they had to feed all of these troops. And so the farm, rather than being destroyed, and the house, rather than being burned down, was overtaken by the freed slaves and overtaken by the Union Army and was continued to be a working farm to feed the troops that occupied Nashville. And if you're from Hazel Path, you can see uh, the rail line across Gallatin Road, across the street, and they would bring the produce that they grew on the farm uh, to the railroad and then take it by railroad into Nashville to feed the troops. They would cut some of the huge timber off the south end of the farm, south end being at 
the location of the Cumberland River and float the logs from the farm down the river to use to fortify and construct the fortifications for the Union Army in Nashville. So it played a major role in the Civil War. Uh, but Jim and I uh, were able to purchase it along with two other individuals back in the early 90s, used it as our office, and it became a political focal point of sorts uh, in Hendersonville. We hosted just about every gubernatorial candidate running on the Republican side. We hosted virtually every Senate candidate, U.S. Senate candidate, on the Republican side. We hosted all sorts of uh, aldermen candidates and county commission candidates and county public office candidates. Basically uh, tried to be supportive of uh, of the causes we felt were justified. And so I had the opportunity uh, during that time to meet a lot of people that I wouldn't normally have met. I, I remember we had Bill Frist, Senator Bill Frist, there twice. Uh, we've had Lamar Alexander there. We've had uh, all of the past governors. We had Governor Haslam and all of the gubernatorial candidates all in, in the same room together there in Hazel Pass yeah. uh, during uh, Governor Haslam's first run for governor. So it really uh, was a good time for us. So when uh, did they, they really start building all of the uh, other buildings on the property? Those buildings on that Hazel Pass property were built in the early 80s, I believe around 81 or 82 was when uh, some of those buildings were built or started. We didn't buy the building, the Hazel Pass building, until 1993. It had already been bought by Harvey Gardner. It had been restored at great expense and great effort. And uh, unfortunately, because of the change in some laws, property had gone into foreclosure, uh, and an insurance company had it and auctioned it off, ultimately auctioned it off uh, one bright sunny day, and, and we bought it. And it is a place of great interest to a lot of people. And certainly it, it did well for us during the about 23 years we had it. But ultimately, uh, uh, as Jim retired and as I was certainly got elected to the judgeship it was it was not something we needed to to continue to maintain so yes. we, we sold it to uh, mr wayne holloway and by the way wayne holloway also owns the chubbs restaurant in gallatin hmm. very interesting so, uh, hey you know what uh, you know this there's such great history here you know what i i really think that Gosh, we could talk hours uh, about what the the history here in Hendersonville. That was one of the factors that I, I guess it was uh, for us when we moved here. There was that that great history that's going on here, and you got an, a pretty extensive law career going back 32 years. We're going to talk more about that when I come back on this uh, last break that we have here. So we're talking with Summer County Chancery Court Judge Lewis Oliver, and it's all, of course brought to you by our friends at FNM Bank at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard and at myfnmbank.com. We'll be right back after this. FNM Bank presents Sumner County Spotlights. Since 1906, FNM Bank has been serving Middle Tennessee with first-class products and services. Visit them today at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville or myfmbank.com. Okay, and we're back with Summer County Spotlight. This is Jeff Shannon filling in for Tony Richards this week. We're continuing uh, our talk with our guest, Summer County Chancery Court Judge Lewis Oliver. Uh, Judge, you know, you've had quite an extensive history, and I know you were a sole proprietor of a legal practice for more than 32 years. I, I know you have lots to tell us about that, so what do you have to say? Well, of course, in my, in my practice, uh, I had dealt not only with the, the matters that I deal with here in court, but I also dealt with criminal matters, dealt with uh, 
a lot of various issues that people run into problems with. I, I represented a lot of people who were dissatisfied with work done on their homes. I represented contractors who dealt with uh, citizens who were dissatisfied. But the criminal work is uh, probably more interesting to do than any of the other work. Certainly it's more interesting than trying to deal with uh, construction defects, but it's uh, not quite as lucrative. A lot of your criminals don't have a lot of money to pay uh, lawyers to defend them. So that's most criminal lawyers are compensated by the state of Tennessee. Like I say, most most individual uh, criminals uh, are not walking around with a lot of money to pay a lawyer to get out of trouble. But I, I did, uh, I've represented people even in uh, a death penalty case. Now, there was uh, a guy named William Wesley Goad, and Wesley Goad was a, uh, unfortunately, a, a, a man who had killed a man over in Millersville at one of the firecracker stands. Uh, they had found him, found the man deceased in his shop one morning after he had been shot the night before. Mr. Gold had also gone into a liquor store out in Nashville and had robbed the store, and uh, the people who were in the store, the man, the clerk in the store, uh, knew him. Gold told him, says, get out on the ground. And he says, you're not going to shoot me, are you? And he says, no, just get out on the ground. And the guy got down on the ground, and Gold shot him, shot him behind the ear, obviously attempting to kill him. But unfortunately for Mr. Gold, and fortunately for the victim, uh, he survived. And the victim subsequently was able to identify Mr. Goad and the gun uh, used to wound, seriously wound the victim in the liquor store robbery was the same gun used to kill the uh, the man in the firecracker stand. And so Mr. Goad, though, had, had fled Tennessee. He had gone to down on the Gulf Shore, a part of Alabama, uh, with his girlfriend. And apparently this girlfriend had family connections here and had informed the family connections here that they were down there, and the family informed the law enforcement authorities. The law enforcement authorities apprehended Mr. Goad. Mr. Goad had come out of the house where the girl was and uh, some other people were, and he was walking down the street, and the police uh, grabbed him on the side of the street, and he had the gun in his pocket that had been used to both kill the man here in Sumner County and wound the fellow in uh, Davidson County, and he was accused of a number of other killings, but those two were definitely tied to him. And the reason I give that history a little bit is because I wound up representing him on death row, and we were able to, subsequently, he had received a death sentence. He had he had two life sentences and a death sentence. And so they took they, they sent me out there to the prison to see him, and I had a, a, a young female attorney with me who also had been appointed to represent him. And we go in, and they put us in the in the room with him and lock us in there. And uh, he starts talking about his rage and how he's just so upset over being locked up, and here I am locked up in there with him, along with this woman. And so uh, I immediately tried to, tried to calm him down, well, the whole time trying to get the guards' attention so he would let us out, and finally he let us out. But uh, you're not always safe just because you're out here representing these criminals. But ultimately, uh, it turns out that he had suffered PTSD while serving in Vietnam. He had had, had a, a close friend of his killed right in front of him. I was able to find a Army psychiatrist, a former Army psychiatrist, 
who testified and ultimately the Tennessee Supreme Court set aside his death sentence and uh, William Wesley Gold died in prison. Now, not everybody gets to represent people like that. Not everybody wants to represent people like that, but there is a need for that. Uh, Mr. Gold might very well have deserved the death penalty, but once you're appointed to a case like that, you're supposed to advocate for your uh, for your client. In this case, Mr. Gold was my client, and we were able to to get him off of death row. Well, you know, that's the, the history that you're talking about in a lot of these great cases, and I'm sure there's a, a many, many more that you can tell us, and we, we can probably talk on for days, <laughs> especially about the history here in Hendersonville. But sure. what brought you at one point to say, hey, you know what, I want to be a judge? Well, I had, uh, I had said I wasn't running for judge. Uh, some of them had asked me about running, and I said, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to go through the hassle of doing it. I don't want to go through the hassle of an election. Well, Judge Rogers who is now deceased, who was a circuit court judge at the time, was at, a, was at a social gathering with me and my wife and the families. And he got to talking to my wife about it. And once he talked to her, then she's the one that decided I was running. And so, therefore, I put my name in. And when I put my name in, it was in with eight other people initially. I began immediately setting up my campaign. I felt like I was ahead in the race. Well, unfortunately, just on the very day that a person could withdraw from the chancery race, Judge Rogers died, hmm. which opened up the circuit court judgeship. So on that day, uh, Judge Thompson, who was running for chancellor, uh, Mark Smith, who was running for chancellor, uh, both got out of the race and got into the circuit race. It wound up with me and three others running for chancellor, uh, and I was successful in, in winning the Republican nomination and didn't have any opposition in the general election. Now, the difference between me and the, and the person I succeeded, Judge Gray, and Judge Gray was a great man and practiced, he was a judge for 28 years here in Sumner County in various positions. Uh, judge Gray never practiced law. And uh, with 32 years law practice under my belt, it gave a different perspective in serving than what Judge Gray had. And I can understand the problems that attorneys have with clients. I can understand uh, the time constraints that attorneys are under, uh, I think more so than Judge Gray could. And so uh, the fact that, that I had all of this experience, I think, has greatly benefited me in serving. Now, I plan to run again, but I doubt I'll serve eight more years. My plan is to have served 10 years as city manager, 30-plus years as a practicing attorney, and 10 years as judge. And uh, I, I, my plan would be that once we get into the new Sumner County Justice Center, that I will at that point consider what my options are. Well, uh, but right now, my plan is to run. Well, let, let me tell you, Sumner County is is honored to have had you served all these years, and you bring a, some great honor to this, this county, and we appreciate you, and I'm sure everybody in the county appreciates that. So thank you so much for, for speaking with us and taking time out of your busy schedule this week, and uh, we hope to talk again because I'm sure we could do many programs about, you know, even the history of, of Hendersonville. So we, we appreciate your time yes, on sir. this. Well, thanks right, to thank S you very much. Absolutely. And thanks to Summer County Chancery Court Judge Lewis Oliver. Summer County Spotlight continues now. And, of course, brought to you by F&M Bank at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard and of myfnmbank.com.
As we continue, we're going to jump into a really interesting topic here and a very historical topic. Uh, we're going to welcome in Cheryl Strichick, the CEO and Executive Director of Monhaven Arts and Cultural Center. We call it the MAC. And Cheryl, welcome in and tell us about, about Monhaven, what's going on. Good morning, Jeff, and thank you so much for having me on the show. It's an honor. And uh, yeah, things are hopping over at Monhaven Arts and Cultural Center. We've got some terrific things happening right now. We have an ex- really incredible uh, exhibition, Hiro Prado, Between Two Worlds. Um, it's a retrospective on his life. He is a, one of the very renowned uh, Latin American artists here of uh, Tennessee. He uh, does live in Nashville with his family. And this uh, exhibition we have right now has about 60, actually it has 80 pieces, including his sculpture work. Uh, it's just terrific exhibition. Uh, his paintings that we start the retrospective uh, start from the early 80s when he did come to America from Colombia. Uh, he has, of course, become a citizen. He's a wonderful patriot, and his 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 pieces, his work is colorful, exuberant, um, just a, a real plethora of beauty throughout the gallery. So I really want to encourage everyone to come and see this show. You know, we're open every day. Tuesday uh, through Saturday, uh, 10 to 5, and then on Sunday, we're open 1 to 5. Of course, it's free, uh, so bring the kids, bring the family, and come see a tremendous own backyard. Well, Cheryl, um, you know, we have a lot of classes, I understand, that you have going on down there, different art classes and things. Is that throughout the year, or is it just uh, specific times uh, of the year? Good question, Jeff. We are year-round in our arts education uh, for children as well as adults. The way we do the children classes, we have, of course, a summer camp. The summer camps start right when school ends and run through uh, the end of July uh, to where it works out uh, for school to start back. And those art summer camps are every day. They run for about eight, nine weeks. And then we have um, our semester classes, which uh, start uh, in August or the end of August, first of September. And they start after school at about 4.15. And then now our program that we've really been working on um, starting this year, we started the last two years, but this year a a really big push and really a lot of success with our daytime homeschool art classes. Uh, That's been going really well. We were able to offer all our classrooms upstairs uh, for the daytime uh, homeschool art classes. So we've got a lot to offer. The adult classes are tremendous. We have... um, uh, stained glass class coming up this fall, our mosaic classes, all our seasonal um, fun art classes that are going to be going on for adults as well as children. But we have a wonderful arts education program. One of the really greatest things that we do as far as arts education is concerned, Jeff, is our outreach program. We are very proud and we work really hard to take our arts programs to different areas of the uh, Sumner County especially, and then we do branch out into Madison. We're working into going into some of the underserved areas uh, to offer the children, other than are coming directly to Monhaven to take the art classes. Of course, we do have scholarships available. But by going to the children and children or people, for instance, in Gallatin, uh, Cottage Cove in Madison, the different places that we go and give outreach is one of our big missions at Monhaven at the MAC. And then, of course, our veterans art program, Between the Lines. That is something really near and dear to our hearts. We go and give free art classes to veterans and their wives or husbands. And then um, what we were starting before COVID 
was our healing arts program. And that was going to be geared towards uh, veterans that have PTSD, suffer from PTSD or from traumatic brain injury. And that was going to be our healing arts, which it is still. It just had to be put off until really actually probably this fall or next year, 2021. I was uh, looking at the, the veterans programs. Now, do you do that at Monhaven or is that at a different location? We are going out uh, location. We give the classes at the VFW right now. And then the classes starting for the Healing Arts Program for the Between the Lines will be given at Monhaven. Now, I'm not saying we won't go other places, but it's scheduled right now to start at Monhaven. Uh, interesting. Now, the when it comes, I know you had a lot of uh, great kids arts programs because uh, our daughter is, you know, great artist and things like that, and she's always looking to expand her activities and and her knowledge. Uh, what are the some of the kids programs, and and is that happening? I know you do the after school uh, things, but you have this summer art program as well. Is that that more of an in depth kind of program? Well, the in depth program actually are your semester classes. That's where you go, um, you're with your art instructor, and that is given weekly. So a student uh, that's really interested in the arts or really wanting to further their expertise and learn more would probably want to enroll in one of the semester classes because it's an ongoing, you know, every week you come in and it, it just moves and grows in its capacity with the student. The summer camps are geared they are still phenomenal. Like our film camp is amazing. And the film that the kids do at the end of the week is truly amazing. Just as an example, we have performing arts, our film camp. Uh, as far as the summer, they are week long programs. Now you can do more than one week, but you are working in a week capacity in the summer camp to where the difference in the semester would be like, for instance, your daughter, she would probably want to take um, digital art, for instance, I'm just using that, and do a semester class because she would have started sometime in August or September or whenever it is and go through until Christmas, until the end of December. And then she can pick it back up for a second semester. And then they are on like a, a, an actual, um, uh, you know, they have a program. So it works. Uh, the semester classes are a little bit more in-depth so to speak. Now, I noticed the, the digital art workshop seems very interesting because that's that seems to be where everything's going. Uh, and also, animation is a, kind of a big factor. But the, the program you have for the digital art workshop, now, do you provide the, the, the equipment, the iPads and such, the Wacoms? Yeah. Matter of fact, we got a grant from the Predators who got, uh, kindly uh, allowed us to be able to purchase the iPads. And then we are also um, underwritten by NOSI College of Art. And NOSI and the Predators both have been real, uh, I mean, they have been right in there with us mm-hmm. as far as our programming with our arts department. Uh, and with the student art show that we do every year, NOSI is always a huge sponsor of that. But um, they, we do have the equipment. It is one of the most popular classes, obviously. You know, we're purists, and it took us uh, really until last year to start teaching digital art because we really stayed with the brush and the canvas and the more hands-on textile. But we know that it is moving in that direction. And there's also a really fun um, class that we teach in the summer, and we're going to teach this to adults, too, and that's called iPhoneography. Mm. And it's <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. I, 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 you would have to talk to Holly, Jeff, because it's something you might be interested oh, in. Oh, yeah. To even learn about absolutely what they have done and learned and we actually uh she worked closely with they do it as a, a subject at nosy college of art but the iphoneography is literally using your iphone in ways that people have no idea what they can do with the photography they can take and all the different uh programs and whatever all it's called you know what i'm talking about mm-hmm. more than i do mm-hmm. but it's really interesting and that was very popular too and we will bring that back um, in the summer for sure. So with the digital phone technology now, these phones, let me tell you, uh, 
you know, I've been a photographer, gosh, for almost 35 years and how it's changed over the years and how people are using these phones is just amazing. So I think it's wonderful that you're offering that kind of class because so many people don't understand what the phone will do and what you can do. Now, of course, you're not going to go out and make billboards out of this, uh, this thing, but you know, but I think it's, exactly. it, it is one of the things. The other thing I want to say that's really great as far as, as while we're on the education part is our master classes. Now that is a tremendous opportunity at Monthaven. For the instance, on October 17th, Jairo Prado, the artist that right now has the retrospective at Monhaven at the Mac, he will be hosting a master class. And that master class is going to be, we're going to be painting small, real small canvases. And then we're building because our creative wood art frames, and we're going to build a frame with the canvas that we paint and they are just spectacular if you come in and see the exhibit now you can see a lot of them on the wall that are in the exhibition and we're going to build those frames with the with the canvas that we paint it is a tremendous opportunity to work with someone on the level of Hiro and have him teach us this art. It's just tremendous. And that, those are the types of classes that are really exciting also that we host. We had a really fantastic one with Renoir. He came, the great-grandson of Auguste Pierre, Auguste Renoir, had a, an exhibition with us. He gave a master class. We've had Alan Shuptron with a master class. We've had some wonderful master classes. And now, next year, in April, we have Romero Brito coming, uh, which is such a coup for Sumner County. And he will be here with his exhibition. And that exhibition will be up through May. It's April 24th, and he will host a master class also. And that's an opportunity of a lifetime. So we're really excited about that. With Picasso on the patio, of course, Picasso, when we had all the C8 pieces of the Picasso uh, edition ceramic, we did host a Picasso on the patio where we painted plates. And our instructors headed that up. Of course, Picasso couldn't be there. (laughs) But in all the cases, um, the master classes are something that Monhaven really loves to offer. And we look forward to offering quite a bit of those as the season progresses. Okay, interesting. I wanted to uh, ask you, you were talking about plates. Do you offer like the the mosaic classes? I know we were talking about plates a minute ago, but uh, anything with the mosaics happening? Fantastic mosaic class going on right now. It did just start uh, about, it's probably in about its third class. That's a semester class, and that's tremendous. One of the uh, really great instructors on mosaic and stained glass is heading that up, Yvette Renee, and that's really terrific. That's happening every Thursday right now at the MAC, and that's a really exciting class, too. Really exciting class. Everybody loves that. She's going to be offering that. I believe we're going to put that on the schedule, too, for adults. Right now it is a youth class, a children's class. Well, interesting. Hey, I know you've got some great folks helping you down there. Tell us a little bit about your team that you have going on. To be really quite frank with you, um, that's the reason Monhaven, the MAC, has been so successful really as a team that we have. You know, as my saying is, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And so I can really say that we have a wonderful group of people our head of administration, Tanya Murtis, she just is the glue that holds us all together. Holly Arrigo, who is our educational coordinator, is just one of the most talented young professionals I've seen in the business. She is tremendous. Her creativity is endless. She heads up our outreach programs and does such a tremendous job. Our teachers, Priscilla Eichler and then Barb Hegeman, she is doing a tremendous job as one of our teachers. We have Sandy Candros, who has been with Hendersonville High School Arts Department for a number of of years, 
and has been with us for a number of years back, started when it was the Arts Council. She's just an amazing person, an amazing teacher. The students love her. She has a following, as they say. And then Kennedy Galpin, our newest team member, she is just wonderful with our social media and all our marketing and a real creative. We're just so excited to have her. She has a great energy about her and so many great ideas. And then John Pitcher, our COO, who we could not even do what we do without because he is the numbers guy. I'm the creative. He uh, backs me up with all the, uh, he reads all the fine line of everything. And that really helps us tremendously with what he brings to the table. All our volunteers, Ingrid Lord, Nancy Jenkins. I mean, we have a, a really tremendous team. I can't say enough. If I've left anybody out, I'm really going to feel bad. And then we've got a great board also. Uh, so we really um, are fortunate at the MAC to have a tremendous workforce, a team that really believes in the mission and the vision. Um, our upcoming exhibits are just amazing. We are going to treat all of Sumner County and Middle Tennessee to a terrific Peter Mac show this Christmas. It's going to open up November 14th. We're going to have 80 pieces of Peter Max. Um, this is going to be so exciting, so colorful. I just can't wait for this opening. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much. It was great information. We appreciate you giving us all that great information. And Sumner County and Hendersonville is honored to have the MAC right here. And in closing words, anything else you would, would like to give us? For asking me that, because um, we did have an incident this last week that happened that really affects our local arts community and really affects so many of us in Sumner County. We lost uh, one of our premier artists, Joel Knapp. He was a plein air painter, and he was um, one of the most popular and endeared artists in the Sumner County area. He was a dentist here. He was a resident for many years, and a lot of people throughout Hendersonville, White House, Gallatin, Portland have paintings of Joel Knapps in their homes and in their offices, and it was really a sad day for us, and I'm really sorry that we saw his passing, but he will live on through his art. Uh, and which brings me to next year, the uh, Vietnam show with David Wright and Chuck Creasy, two residents of Gallatin. That is going to be a tremendous show. And Joel painted with David Wright in the Southern Light Artist with Frank G and Bill Pereira. And it's just a real loss for our community. We just want to all join together in saying uh, blessings to his family. And thank you so much again, Jeff, for having me on this morning. I really appreciate it. Well, that's awesome. Thank you, Cheryl, so much. Well, that's going to conclude Sumner County Spotlight for this week. And as we're sitting in for Tony Richards this week, he'll be back next week. We want to thank Cheryl Strichick, CEO and Executive Director with Monhaven Arts and Cultural Center this week. Join us next week for more of Sumner County Spotlight, sponsored by FN Bank at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard and at myfnmbank.com. We'll see you next week, and goodbye from Sumner County Spotlight. Sumner County Spotlight has been brought to you exclusively by FNM Bank, 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville. Whether you need personal banking, banking for your business, or even home mortgages, FNM Bank can provide you with excellent service right here in Sumner County. Visit them today at myfmbank.com. Sumner County Spotlight will return next Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening.